This is Nicole Doily, and welcome to Let's Talk Conversations on Race. Here, we discuss various topics on race, hoping to spark conversation and foster greater understanding. Remember to subscribe to Let's Talk on your favorite podcast platform, and go ahead and rate and review. Now, let's talk. I'm a person of color, and so I cannot say that when I look at what the media shows a black man to Mm. be, my heart cringes. I'm fearful for my loved ones who go out. So I think there's not one black family who is without that kind of fear for their loved ones or for themselves. And so I think that is a trauma. I definitely think that's a trauma and having to deal with that and talk through that might be related to mental health outcomes, including suicide. Today with me on Let's Talk, I have psychologist Dr. Ellen G. Denton. Dr. Denton primarily focuses on adolescent mental health in lower to middle income countries and low income communities here in the United States. She is currently funded by the National Institute of Mental Health to study how demographics affect suicide risk. It is so good to have you with us, Dr. Denton. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, Dr. Denton, you have done a lot of work looking at suicide risk, particularly in Guyana, South America. For those of us unfamiliar with that country, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about that country, its demographics, and also why you chose that country as your focus? Yes, surely. So Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America. It's in the northeastern, western tip, neighboring Venezuela and neighboring Suriname. Hmm. It used to have one of the seven world wonders there. I don't think it's on the list, but the waterfall is still there. So that will be Kaicher Falls with a, I believe, a 741 foot drop. It's um, on the interior of the country. And so Guyana is known for that. And it borders its south borders by Brazil in the Amazon basin. Wow. So that's Guyana. And important probably to our discussion is the fact that two things. One is that it's a post-colonial country. What do I mean? I mean that it was once colonized by Britain, and in 1966, it got its independence Mm -hmm. from Britain. And so the remnants of the English culture, like any colony of Britain, Mm. is definitely there, and Mm. I'm sure will come up in our discussion. And then the other thing is that Guyana is 29% African, about 19% mixed heritage, 39% East Indian, about 10% Indo-Guyanese, Native Mm. Guyanese who live in the hinterland. So what I mean is that it's very diverse. The Mm. people are every shade of black, brown, um, red, or whatever other race or ethnicity you can come up with. And um, it's also pretty heterogeneous by religion, Hindu, Pentecostal, Buddhist, Muslim, and Christian. So those are actually relatively equally distributed throughout the population. So it's a really gem. It's a big gem in America, Guyana. Okay. It's true. When I think of South America, I think of former Spanish colonies, not a British colony. So, (laughs) or Portuguese. Yeah. 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 
and and that's unique about Guyana because I mean you have the Spanish speaking countries there, but then Suriname to the right of Guyana, it depends on how you're looking at the map, but Suriname to the right of Guyana on its eastern side was Dutch colonized. Oh. And then French Guyana is French colonized till this day. And then you have Brazil, which is to its southeast, which is Portuguese. And then on the left-hand side, you have Venezuela and Chile and those other countries, which are Spanish-speaking. Right. Wow. My goodness, we could do an episode just on that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the diversity of people groups. Yes. Yes. So why did you choose uh, Guyana to focus? I chose Guyana because I grew up in New York City. Mm. And, well, there are two reasons why I chose Guyana. One was the Guyanese culture and the West Indian culture in New York City, where I grew up and at the time that I grew up, it was just a melting pot. Mm -hmm. It was a part of my culture um, growing up in New York City. So we were very proud West Indians in Mm. New York. I think Labor Day Parade says it all. Uh And so Guyanese culture, going to Guyanese weddings, um, getting doubles or um, pepper pots was just a part of growing up. And so I really identified with West Indian culture and was quite proud of that. And then the second reason and the primary reason was I started to go to Guyana on missions trips in 2009 there was a missionary at my church who was of Guyanese heritage, or she was a native. And once she retired from working here in the States, she went back and opened an orphanage oh. in Guyana uh-huh. and solicited help from clinicians, myself, social workers, hmm. and others, MDs, to help um, work with the orphans which they called at that time street children in Guyana. And so she took some in and there was a a lot of resource poured in from the church to the missionary board. So it was not only financial resource given to them, but it was also professional resource. And I was a part of that. And so I started visiting there in 2009 and that eventually turned into merging with me collecting research data that I could not ignore. And that research data showed that 36% of the kids had a previous suicide attempt in the child protection system in Guyana. And so I couldn't ignore it. And from that, I began consultation services to the child protection agency as a psychologist, Mm. um, probably around 2014 or so. I see. Well, that sort of segues into my next question, Uh, you know, just talking about your work there. So that's how it started. You notice that startling statistic. That's 36% of all children or children who were orphans? They were children who were either temporarily or permanent orphans. Children who were taken away from their parents. And in the suicide world, suicide research, 36% is quite high of a young person reporting a previous suicide attempt. And so even, you know, some studies show around 10% of suicide attempts in a population, in a general population. But so 36% was quite high. Yeah, it's a special population, a vulnerable population because they've been removed from their parents. But to have that amount of children reporting that they've attempted suicide, not just have thoughts, but attempted suicide, 
um, was startling and just needed intervention. Wow. So what have you found in terms of how demographics correlate with suicide risk? Is there a, a correlation between the two? Yes. Um, yes. The In Guyana in particular, they've identified certain groups to have higher risks of suicide. One that is similar to the United States is females are more likely to attempt mm. and males are more likely to complete, mm. but females are more likely to attempt. And we do see that as well in Guyana. So that demographic is at risk. Also, um, in Guyana specifically, we see religion that Hindu and Pentecostal religion are high risk for suicide relative to other religions. Wow. Um, we're also seeing older kids, so within the age of 15 to 24, at risk for suicide in Guyana, which it quite contends with our data here in the United mm-hmm. States, we see a peak um, in the emerging adult age group. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing it is more of a problem in Guyana among East Indian, those who identify as East Indian relative mm-hmm. to other ethnic groups mm-hmm. uh, or racial groups identified in Guyana. Mm-hmm. Do you know that what you said about those who identify as Hindu and Pentecostal are the highest? Do you have any sense why? No. Um, and that's exactly why we're there collecting this data to figure out why. So currently we're an NIH-funded study through Columbia University. We're assessing 5,000 people to really understand these demographic factors and, you know, why, what's the pattern so some people will say, I was born Muslim, but then they become Hindu, they marry a Hindu, they become Hindu. Or um, some people are born Hindu, and then they'll say, I became a Christian. So we see a little bit more shifting in religious identification in, in Guyana than one would see in other places. So I should say that out front. And so local people will say things like, charismatic beliefs and believing that they've seen God or God has called them home okay. um, might be related to it. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So these high numbers and, and what you're seeing in Guyana, are there any similarities with other South American countries or is this really unique? So this is This is quite similar. The World Health Organization in 2019 published some data showing that Guyana had a rate of 40.8 per 100,000 people. Hmm. And Suriname was not too far behind. So Suriname is the neighboring country to the right. Um, We did see some elevated rates in Uruguay. Hmm. But other than that, no. So in that World Health Organization data that I am referencing, those are the only three countries that were highlighted in red as having high suicide rates. Wow. Wow. So tragic and so interesting. So what are you, what are you hoping your contribution could be? What are you hoping to accomplish through your research there? Ah, uh, thank you for asking me that. Because, <laughs> right, we, we always want to, like, you know, make a contribution to the yes. field. So one of my 
passions. Initially, when I started this work and going to Guyana, I told you how it began, right? And so I initially thought if 77% of suicides around the world are accounted for by low and middle income countries, Mm. then why aren't low and middle income countries better represented in the scientific data? Mm. Like, how are we going to build generalizable suicide models? How are we going to put a dent in preventing suicide globally if the people who are dying by suicide the most are not represented in these scientific models? Wow. And that was my thrust. And so I went at it, and some might say, well, that's kind of cognitive. That's quite, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But... But if I, I had to have that stance um, at the time, and I still do have that stance to a great extent. I had to have that stance because one person cannot, I do not believe that one person can make a difference in isolation. I, I stand with the scientific community who are brilliant minds with brilliant resources who will hopefully over time develop um, ways to prevent suicide because we know yes. it's preventable. Yes. And so I wanted people of varied or diverse backgrounds and people who are suffering the most from from death by suicide in their communities and in their homes to be represented in the scientific literature. So that is and was a big motivation. Yes. Another yes. Motivation is the practical side, is to be able to give resources. So, in fact, I came back from Guyana last week, and in Guyana, I did some trainings in the hospital. I've done some trainings in the child welfare care service. Hmm. And really, it's coming alongside those frontline workers who are working ridiculously hard. Mm. to save these young people's lives and equipping them with skill sets to manage their workload, to manage some of them. Some of them, I, I asked the caseworker last week in Guyana, how many children does she have on her load? She said 200. Oh my gosh. I mean, right. And so for her to be able to join a workshop, I did a workshop on how to deescalate and how to stay safe with the patient who is acting out, Um, for her to have consultation on some of her hard cases, for her to hear new ideas about how to approach um, clients who are in need, that that helps support them and helps prevent them from burnout. So that's one practical way. And we are committed to do that right now. The Guyana Mental Health and Wellbeing Conference is slated annually to do just that and bring minds together to help them to better do their job and to feel supported in their job. And then also the last piece I would say is that I aim hopefully to develop some sort of psychosocial intervention directly with the kids there Mm. that we know that works here for kids and teaching them how to connect one with another, how to Mm. communicate with adults who are safe. Mm. And hopefully that can mitigate some of their suicide risk. So those are probably like my three prongs. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. So let's let's talk about how the bridge between Guyana and the U.S. Why is it important for the U.S. as a country to examine the suicide risk in Guyana? Exactly. Um, 
so this is related to my previous answer. I don't think that the U.S. One, I we know here that in the United States, we see that suicide in rural areas mm-hmm. are relatively higher than suicide in urban areas. Okay. And so, and what the problem is in rural areas is that sometimes, well, often there's low resource in those areas. So the capacity, the mental health capacity is similar to any other low resource area where there might be one social worker per thousand people, or there might be one psychiatrist or psychologist per 1,000 people. And so how to prevent suicide in those types of settings where people are not Practically, they're not going to have a build a big John Hopkins to go yes. to, yes. or they're not going to have a big UCLA or yes. UCSF. So, in rural areas, building um, mental health capacity might be um, limited if you're depending on an institution. So yes. we have to come up with creative ways to service low resourced areas, and that I think is quite similar in places like low middle income countries or developing countries such as Guyana. Yes. But also I think it's important to do work there so that we can have a representative a fair or equitable representation of where the suicide risk lies. Hmm. And so inclusion of low and middle income countries is the thrust. And I think that is important for United States research Hmm. and any other industrialized nation research. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a a paper that you sent me states that the, um, the rate of suicide and suicidal behavior among black youth in this country are rising. Mm -hmm. Um, It said that in 2008, suicide was the fifth leading cause of death in five to 17 year olds, Mm -hmm. uh, five to 17 black youth. And 10 years later in 2018, suicide was the third leading cause of death Mm -hmm. in that same range. Mm -hmm. So, so that's disturbing on so many levels. Um, Do you have any ideas about why this is on the rise? Do you feel like trauma is on the rise or are there other things going Mm -hmm. on? You know, um, there is there was a famous study done, and the data is just coming out now. It's called the ABCD study, and it is a national study with several different sites. They have over eleven thousand nine to ten year olds in this study. Wow! And it was funded by NIH. It's a phenomenal, grand study, mm. and they found associations between um, stigma, institutional stigma. Mm. and low or smaller hippocampal volume. So the smaller area in the hippocampus, which you know is the region for memory in one's brain, Mm. and that was related to suicide um, risk in one study. So I, and that, that study said that Really, they noted that experiencing stigma and stereotype and being in an institution or part of institutions where less power is given to the person eventually does have some physical or mental health. We can, we can now see. It's a neuroimaging study. Oh, um, and we can now see that there are differences for persons of color who have experienced such stigma. And we can see those differences using neuroimages in their brain. And that's a plausible 
explanation is it stigma that is related to suicide risk. So that that's one reason. And one, another is trauma. We know from adverse childhood experience studies, the ACE studies, that having adverse childhood experiences and having more of it is related to suicide risk. Yes. Um, and in my data from Guyana, I've shown that if we were to compare youth with the suicide attempt to youth without a suicide attempt, on average, the youth with a suicide attempt had four or more, on average, four more experiences of trauma. Wow. You know, meaning physical or sexual abuse or even being bit by a dog, you know, traumatic experiences in their life. Wow. So we know that trauma is related. So, you know, part of that statistic kind of is breathtaking that the, the range starts at five years old. And, you know, the, the study said that when you're talking about kids 13 years old and below, that rate is twice as high among Black kids as among white kids. So from mm-hmm. 5 to 13 years old is twice yeah. as high. So yeah. how is that possible? How is it possible for such little kids to even think about taking their lives? Yeah, isn't it hard? It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, so typically in the suicide world, we we put the average age of 10 to be like the age of understanding suicide, you know, or even understanding the permanence of death. Okay. And so kids younger than that, and I have met kids who have endorsed suicide who are younger than that. Mm. We query whether how much they understand that there is no coming back, that life has really ended and there's nothing more. There's no more changes happen. Yeah. And so many people have thought of maybe it's an impulse. Mm. Um, maybe, you know, and, and I've had youth who've reported things like they've been so upset they could not deal with their emotions mm-hmm. um, and the intensity of their emotions that they thought it would be ready. They, it would be better to, to, to die. Mm-hmm. So... When we are looking at these increasing rates among youth of color, I think there are just so many plausible mechanisms that we have. We need to explore or understand. And it's hard to do that given that we might not even have tools yet mm. to really assess. Um, there, there have been some tools that have recently been developed, ASQ, and they do go into younger ages. But we really, because suicide is such a complicated, mm-hmm. um, because mortality is a complicated concept. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I think there's just much more work that needs to be done in understanding what a young person says when they say they don't want to live anymore. Yes. And I think we need to take them seriously. Yes. Um, And not be dismissive and really engage them and communicate with them. And we know, we do know that there's a lot to do with bonding and connection and interpersonal skills with, and that security and that safety that young persons need for development. But I do think that there's far more work to be done to understand those increasing rates. Yes, yes. Which sort of links back to what we started talking about in the first place. You know, you work in Guyana and just needing for people from these communities to be represented in the research. Exactly. Yeah. This is where the majority of the global suicides are occurring in low yeah. middle income countries. So we have to be inclusive, I think. As a scientist, we have to be inclusive. Yes. 
When you said um, that there was greater stigma, did you mean like in the Black community, there's greater stigma around admitting that you have those thoughts? Oh, thank you for clarifying. I was referencing the ABCD study that they measured um, stigmatization and defined it really as um, stereotypes, uh, policies that lead to disempowering individuals in those institutions. That's how they measured it in the study. And that was related to smaller hippocampal volume and suicide risk. Oh, I didn't say that the ABCD study also found that Black youth, in one of their studies, they found that Black youth who endured suicide were less likely to utilize services. Mm. And that that might be a piece that is left out as well. Like, why are youth who are at risk for suicide less likely to have that counseling session, see the therapist, get follow-ups and get treatment for it? And so... That might be another target for better understanding risk specific to Black youth. Yes. But no, the the stigma of, there is another stigma that we do see in Guyana and in other places and communities of color where speaking about mental health in general, not just suicide risk, surviving suicide risk, there's stigma there as well. Yeah, yeah. So when you clarified and talked about what stigmatization means, yes, I was going to ask about that. If you felt like racism or seeing what we saw last summer, I mean, we know that racism has been here since the beginning of our country. And, you know, there's so there's, you know, that's not new. And and in some ways, you know, there has been progress. But nevertheless, for the first time, we are seeing people die on video camera and we're we're following the trials of the perpetrators you know more closely because it's all so much in our face so on the one hand there's nothing new about racism but on the other hand perhaps we're seeing the effects more up close and personal do you feel like that's significant I think so. And so I'm I'm going to step out and give opinion here. Yeah. I'm not um this has not been tested or formally tested or there's no experiment, ongoing experiment. But I definitely think that things like Trayvon Martin, um, Michael Brown, and, and seeing the trauma and the assault in the black community is hurtful, is yes. painful. And I definitely think that there is influence there on the developing mind. And one might say it even goes as far as to a hopelessness or a future outlook that is negative. And we know that future outlook and hope is associated with suicide. Yes. So I'm not saying that because of these horrid events, but I do think that exposure to these events on national news, on TV, I think that exposure to these events are traumatic for Black people and for young Black people in particular. By far, um, I'm a person of color. And so I cannot say that when I I look at what the media shows a Black man to Mm. be, my heart cringes. I'm fearful for my loved ones who go out. I have even said... um, once being accused when I was with my brother, 
who is an NYU grad and engineer, by the way, when he was accused of a crime, I once myself said to him, just please, just show them your pockets. Mm. And the I understand for him the conflict. Yes, yeah. Um, that he experienced with saying, why should I have to do this? Yes. Um, and I'm thinking, I just want... I just don't want anything to escalate. I don't want you to die. You know? Yes. yes. Um, so I think there's not one Black family who is without that kind of fear yes. for their loved ones or for themselves. And so I think that is a trauma. I, I definitely think that's a trauma. And there's some degree to that trauma. Of course, the degree of that trauma varies. But I think that is a trauma. And having to deal with that and talk through that might be related to mental health outcomes, including suicide. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking this is yet another reason to be so careful. You know, we don't want our kids, our young people to stick their head in the sand and not be aware because they have to be aware on some level so that they could be wise. But at the same time, we have to be so careful. You know, my husband and I are talking about social media and news and how much exposure to these different things. And because as much as they need to be aware, they don't need to be saturated in it. Yes. Yes. Just for so many reasons. But this is one of them. Yeah. There's some protection there by not being set. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a hard line to tell. It's hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. Yes. We, we feel that tension all the time, wanting to give those lectures about safety without traumatizing, without, yeah. without filling their young hearts with undue fear. Yeah. It, it takes a bucket load, a truckload of wisdom and grace. Yes. Much wisdom and much grace. Yeah. So um, what do you feel like is needed to shift this trend among Black youth in the United States? I think we touched on some of it in terms of resources and availability. What else? I think, I mean, is that like, can I can I give any answer? Is this like an open-ended, oh. I had a billion dollars answer? Yes. <laughs> No, 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 money's no limit. Let's oh, that's what we need to hear. I think um I think we need to have we need to have more invested researchers. Yeah. Who and and I, I respect the research community very much so and I know that they there are so many competing interests, you know, um in the research community, but I think if we did work to really take the time to understand what is going on, and sometimes that will include qualitative work, focus group work, um, to really understand the gaps in interviewing these young persons who are at risk so that we can then develop the right tools to ask about their suicide risk. Mm -hmm. So then we can develop the right interventions that target those areas of need. So I'm basically saying that we need people who are in for the long haul yes, and who are invested in these communities. And they don't necessarily, in my opinion, have to look like them, but they have to be willing to interact and engage for real yes. with them. Um, and it needs to be a priority. Yeah. Exactly. You have to check. And, you, you know, when you're working with young people, everyone knows this. Um, young people will call you out. They can tell. Yes. Faking it. And so we care less. Yes. 
So it can't be a checklist model. It yes. can't be, I know the right way to do this. Just follow me. And it, that goes back to the whole post-colonial thing, because that alone, that approach is traumatizing, you know? Um, what do you mean? So for for communities and cultures where they were previously owned or ruled by by governing authorities who did not look like them, mm. it is there's a lot of shame and judgment embedded in those exchanges. Wow. So what I mean is, as a matter of fact, I came back from Guyana last week, and in one of our talks, the young persons who had lost someone by suicide hmm. were explaining um, how much shame and judgment um, they experience, and that causes them to withdraw and hmm. isolate. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know in the scientific community that withdrawal and isolation um, is associated in loneliness, is associated with depression. Yes. And depression is associated with suicide. Yes. So th- that's the opposite of what we want. Right. Um, however, that is often sometimes the default reaction mm-hmm. for people groups who have been oppressed. Yes. And the undoing of that is quite hard. And so we need people and researchers and scientists and professionals in general who are invested in the breaking down those walls and explicitly saying there's no judgment here, there's no fear here, um, I'm trustworthy, and using the communication to develop the trust, to develop the relationship so the questions can be asked so we can learn what are the risk factors to suicide. And I know that sounds like just a tall order or it just sounds like very arduous work, but it's what we inherited. Yes. I mean, I see you talked about, you know, in colonized countries, but I see that in the United States too. I was, I was saying to a friend, you know, black people feel judged almost all of the time (laughs) in terms of, you know, I remember when my boys were younger, I had, you know, being aware of eyes on me in terms of my parenting and, you know, through this whole COVID pandemic and uh, pre-existing conditions and, mm-hmm. you know, I, attitudes like, well, you brought this on yourself and just a kind of a very finger wagging kind of shame that mm-hmm. has been borne by Black people in this country. Yes. Um, and I can imagine that being part of the problem. It is, you know, I'm so glad that you said that because it it's just, I don't know how many Black people speak about that often, mm. but it's just pervasive and it just stays with you. You know, did I walk into this room late? Are they thinking I'm late because I'm Black? Yes. Or, you know, the, the judgment and the criticism. Sometimes I think that coming from a colonized nation, mm-hmm. I think that it was taught to us, some of us, um, our parenting, our grandparenting, it was, you know, fear was instilled and you just shamed, you were just shamed to do the right thing. And that's just a part of the language um, that was inherited from slave owners um, and was just passed down generation to generation. And when we think of things like getting beatings and, whoopings. Yeah. We know that that that's a direct derivative of, you know, slavery. Yeah. And so 
that oppressor oppression model exists within the way some of us were raised. But then even if, if one were to say, well, my household was void of that. No, we were, there was no shame. There's no judgment. There was no fear instilled in us. I am black and that's not the way I was raised. There is still a reality of when a black person is interacting with the majority culture, the query in the back of their head is, is this okay? Am I okay? Yep. Am I fitting in okay? And that, so I think we get it on two sides. It might be related or not, but Mm -hmm. I think we get it on two sides at least. Yes. Am I, you know, for, for black men, am I, am I dressed in a way that is not suspicious looking? Am I carrying myself in a way that's not intimidating? Um, Am I, where are my hands? Are they, you know, in this interaction? Mm -hmm. You're just so aware of everything around you. Mm -hmm. Every antenna is up as soon as you exit your house. Yeah. Um, It's yes. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah. And I think, I think black men and black women feel it in different ways. I don't think usually, I don't think with black women, it's, you know, the, the, the dangerous black male myth is generally towards black males. But I think black women feel it in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, are we being loud? Are we being angry? Are we being pushy or, you know, just, um, I mean, other, I think white women go through the pushy thing too, but um, yeah. Yeah. I think um, for black women definitely don't want to come across as the angry black woman. I have air quotes yeah. or the, the sexualized black woman. Yes. Then that's something that, you know, am I hiding my curve? Yeah. Is my hair. I mean, now we're in a trend where I think New York State in 2019 passed a law that it was okay to wear Afro cultural hair in the workplace. <laughs> yes, when, yes, only a few years ago. Is it okay oh, for us to wear our hair? Yes, right. <laughs> um, and so look at that, you know, case in point that all of the time, all of the time, this there might be a query of, you know, I know they don't understand my hair. I know that. But is am I being judged for it being in a puff? Yeah. Am I being judged because I relaxed it this weekend or I'm wearing my corn braids this weekend? You know, Absolutely. all of those questions, I know it's not understood. And, you know, it's hard to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but am I being looked upon because it's not status quo? Yeah. 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 So good. Well, I want to just end by asking one more question. In that paper, um, it mentioned the importance of community organizations like churches, like um, boys and girls clubs, being part of the key to the solution. Could you could you finish this off just by talking about a little about that? Certainly. Um, Yes, I'm so glad that you brought that up because what we know about Black um, Americans here in the States, we know that they tend to be more collective Mm -hmm. um, than majority culture. And there are certain pillars in a Black community, such as Greek organizations, such as churches. And those types of institutions might be the primary target arena for interventions or and and assessments and it also might be 
the only way to get into these communities, ask the questions that we need to ask, and then develop the the prevention models that we need to develop. And so we see this in the cardiovascular literature. I'm thinking about Dr. Benga Oga Degbi, who ran a trial in Black churches because he wanted to screen for hypertension. Mm. And of course, Black people go to cardiologists and they go to primary care physicians, but which community do you think they would be more open to mm-hmm. discussing their blood pressure, discussing their cardiovascular health? Mm-hmm. And which community do you think they'll be open to talking about it candidly? Mm-hmm. And that would be barbershops and churches. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what that would be. Yes. Um, and, and you know, Black, we spend a lot of time sometimes. Barbershops and churches. <laughs> Barbershops and churches, exactly. Yep. So it's where you can get Black populations, but it's also where um, wholesome, kind of connected um, solidarity occurs, you know, quite organically. Yep. And so that was the Sheftal at all um, in that paper that you're signing in JAMA. They're they're pointing to maybe we need to have those types of target models for suicide risk mm-hmm. and to better understand suicide risk. Maybe we need to have these discussions in churches and barbershops and um, beauty shops and YMCA's and boys and girls clubs where we know that black youth are gathering. Yeah. And and also I think I could tag on that the exclusion of those places means that you're not going to get black people. (laughs) If you want them, that's where you got to go. Right. It's so interesting because I I did an episode with Dr. Angela Branch about COVID vaccine hesitancy in the black community. And she said the same thing in terms of reaching black people, in terms of trust, uh, increasing the vaccine rates. The key is going into black communities, black churches where black people hang out. That even as a black woman, she didn't have the trust levels built up as much as a black pastor would. Oh yeah. yeah. So so it's like in this too. It's just it's just very interesting. Yeah, and in particular suicide because it's such a difficult conversation to have if you have a religious leader who is willing to sit with you and talk with you. I mean that trust is built Sunday after Sunday or whatever day that you go um, to worship, that that trust is built over time. So to have that kind of person or those kind of of persons speaking to you about your mental health and suicide risk, there's there's a comfort there. Yeah. And that trust, I think, will go a very long way. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Denton, it was such a pleasure having you with us this evening. I'm so thrilled to have had this conversation with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for your time and your incredibly important work. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. See you next time. This is Nicole Doily. Special thanks to Dan Parker for producing this episode of Let's Talk. And thank you for listening. Mm